Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, debate on freedom of speech on campus. It is particularly appropriate, I think, that we're having this at the LSE because uh, I think from the LSE that we're on the front line on this one. This is what we do. We engage. And when we engage, we take risks. We do it with our public lecture series. We do it indeed with some of the courses that we teach. And our student societies also engage very actively. And I think we all push in a way towards the edge in that engagement. And that's what we do. And sometimes, of course, we get into trouble on that. And I think of recent examples of both public lectures by the school and student societies in the school, which have caused difficulties on campus. It's not just students and uh, public lectures, it's also our own academics. Uh, I sent both our speakers some press cuttings about uh, Kana Azawa in, in last summer. Again, I think these things were engaging, and yet all of them, in a way, question what sort of boundaries there are, and when it is there is censorship, if you like, imposed from the centre, or self-censorship, who imposes it. So I think that's an issue. The format in which uh, views are expressed has also been an issue on campus. Does it matter if it's in a student newspaper? Is it okay if it's in a blog rather than a research paper? Where it's said on campus, do these things matter? So I think from our own experience at the LSE, it's something where we actually, almost every week, have to make a difficult decision. And the decisions are difficult. There's nothing very obvious quite often in whether something should go ahead, shouldn't go ahead, whether some people ought to be prepared to be perhaps upset, offended by what is said and what isn't. So that's the practical side of it from our point of view. And I'm very uh, delighted that we've got two speakers from outside the LSE in order to put perspective on this. Uh, Professor Sue Mendes, here on my left, from uh, University of, of York, is a political philosopher who's written on political philosophy, theories of toleration, theories of justice, philosophy of literature, one of her most recent publications is Politics and Morality. And in the Friday Questions in 2007, she brought on the theme of terrorism and religious toleration. Nicola Dandridge, sitting here, is a chief executive of the Universities UK. Before that, uh, she was the chief executive of the Equality Challenge Unit. So she, of course, is at the front line of what universities actually do. I'm not saying this is the theory and the practice. I'm sure they will overlap. Uh, but that's, well, that was why we thought these would be two very appropriate speakers for this event. We're very grateful that they're, they're here. And Universities UK, of course, uh, published last year uh, a guide on freedom of speech on campus, which I have to say we didn't receive very well at the LSC. We thought it didn't engage with some of the difficulties that we actually face. It just touched the surface as far as, as we were concerned. So I think we have a, a balance here, and this is a debate. I will ask both speakers to speak for just a, a short amount of time, five to ten minutes, maybe just ask one or two questions myself, maybe just one, and then I want to throw it over to, to the audience. I think this is something in which you know, we welcome your views, because this is genuinely a very difficult issue. I don't think anyone in, in this room would pretend that it, it wasn't a difficult issue. So Sue, do you want to start? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. Um, as has been said, I'm a political philosopher and I've been an academic for nearly 40 years. So w what that means is at least two things. One is that I try to do the thing I tell my students to do, which is to answer the question you've been asked. And the other is that I've spent nearly 40 years of my life um, being assured that I have a full hour 
in which to tell people the things that I want to tell them. So now I've got five to ten minutes, and I promise I won't take the full hour, even, even though it's my habit and, and practice, I'll, I'll cram it all in. Freedom of speech doesn't extend it doesn't to an hour. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, it's ten minutes worth of freedom of speech, and that's more than enough. Um, but so, so sit more seriously, I will just make the points that I, that I want to make very briefly. If you're asked to quest the question, what justifies and what limits freedom of speech on campus, you have to do two things. You first of all have to say something about the justification and limits of free speech, and you have to say something about the nature of the campus or the nature of a university. In 1859, John Stuart Mill published a book called On Liberty, and in On Liberty he presents a very powerful and famous argument for freedom of speech, and the justification for freedom of speech that Mill offers is a justification in terms of truth. What Mill tells us, crudely speaking, is that freedom of speech is important because it is only in the free marketplace of ideas that truth will emerge. So he thinks of the world, in some sense, as a big seminar room in which everybody has their say. When everybody has their say, truth emerges out of this, or at any rate, that's your best shot. There are other arguments, lots of other arguments, for freedom of speech, but one I want to which I want to draw attention is an argument from autonomy. So some people have said, well, the argument from truth, I mean, I think the argument from truth is not actually a terribly good argument, but let's put that aside. People have said, well, there's also an argument from autonomy. The reason we want, we, we value freedom of speech is because it's through freedom of speech that people, students, let's say, come to understand who they are and what they value and which, what kinds of people they are. They come to gain autonomy to be autonomous beings. Those two arguments, there are lots of other arguments for freedom of speech, but those two arguments are ones which are often thought to dovetail very neatly into an account of the university. Because it's sometimes said, well, universities are contexts within which people, um, that people pursue truth. What is it that happens at universities? We pursue the truth, or aim, aim at truth. Similarly, Universities are contexts in which we aim at, all, at the development of autonomy. So what I want for my students within the university is that they shall become autonomous thinkers. And so if we, this is the way the argument goes. So if we're asked a question about the importance of free speech on campus, we get an answer. And the answer is that free speech on campus is very valuable because of two sets of considerations, considerations of truth and considerations of autonomy. I, I like that argument very much, and I think it suffers only from the disadvantage that it's wrong. And I think it's wrong in, in, in several ways which, which are important. One is that, and again, I, I won't extend my, my time unduly, one is it's very difficult to show that a free marketplace of ideas, in any straightforward sense, is the most appropriate um, forum in which to to gain access to or increase access to truth. I mean, in, in ordinary contexts, it, it simply isn't true that um, the 
the use of speech is like the use of speech in a large seminar where everybody has their say. It's the case, in fact, don't we know it, that some speech is more powerful than others, some speech is louder than others, some carries more, has more influence than others. So it's not necessarily the case that if all speech is free, truth will emerge. What's also true, of course, is that not all speech aims at truth. Some aims at some aims at, at, at humour, some aims at insult. Put that aside. There are various considerations of that sort. At any rate, it needs more argument to show that free speech is to be valued because, of its, because it is conducive to the attainment of, of truth, and similarly um, in, in the case of autonomy. My concern is that the argument about this, that I've just outlined about the importance of free speech on campus is an argument which neglects a very important feature of universities, or so it seems to me, and that is that at their best, and they aren't always at their best, at their best universities are communities within which people need to work together to establish what's true or what's best or what's most reasonable. And those considerations of community and of the importance of community will frequently speak in favour of restrictions on freedom of speech. So that, and you know, I'm, I'm an old-style 1970s feminist, one of the important arguments that 1970s feminists raised in the pornography debate was, was this argument. You, Ronald Dworkin, various others, emphasized the importance of free speech for the development of autonomy. But sometimes free speech is used in pornography, for example, in a way which undermines and diminishes the autonomy of women. Now, you may or may not think that's true, but it's a consideration and a significant one. So within universities, within communities, it can be the case that people use freedom of speech in order to divert attention from truth or in order to undermine autonomy. And therefore, it seems to me, if we want arguments for freedom of speech, we need to do more than and different from simply appealing to considerations of truth or considerations of, of autonomy. And there's a very, I think, very, very significant passage in a book by Bernard Williams, 2002 book called Truth and Truthfulness, in which he says it's very rarely recognized, but it is in fact the case that universities are amongst the most highly regulated contexts of all. And those who, and properly so is his thought, those who think that universities are places where it either is true or should be true that free speech is untrammeled are mistaken as a matter of fact and wrong as a matter of morality. And I, I'm not arguing for that now, I just want to put it on the table and we can perhaps come back to it later. My main thought is simply the thought that the, many of the main reasons given for freedom of speech on the campus are reasons that stand in need of much greater justification and explanation if they're to do the moral work that's, um, that, that's if they're to bear the moral weight that's put upon them. Thank you. Thank you. Take a look.
Thank you very much, and thank you also, uh, Janet and LSE, for this invitation. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Universities UK, we are the representative body for all uh, universities within the United Kingdom, uh, and to that extent get very involved in issues of uh, lobbying and engagement and communication of finance and funding and regulation and quality assurance and all that sort of thing. And normally, issues of free speech would not necessarily be fundamental to our agenda. However, uh, it very much came to the fore when uh, there was the appalling incident back in two December 2009 when uh, Mr. Abdul Mutalab, the so-called uh, Detroit bomber, sought to blow up an aeroplane on Boxing Day. Following that event, there was very widespread uh, allegations and media reporting that he had been motivated by uh, violent Islamic extremism and that he'd been radicalised during his time at university and he'd been radicalised by external speakers. Now, there was subsequently uh, a full investigation done into the circumstances of his radicalisation and it uh, established that uh, there was no uh, reliable evidence connecting his exposure to speakers, radical Islamic speakers, and his subsequent radicalisation. And in fact, it emerged that he'd become radicalised after he'd left university. But nonetheless, the allegations were pretty powerful. And there was a, a very strong pressure on us and universities to clamp down quite considerably on invitations to speakers who might be controversial, politically difficult, uh, and uh, arguably unacceptable to the establishment. And we uh, got very much drawn into this debate and what emerged was tremendous uncertainty within the university sector as exactly what their rights and obligations were um, in relation to free speech, in relation to uh, speakers who may be coming onto campus at the request of the student unions, not only the university, and how uh, issues of free speech related to um, other obligations on university in relation to uh, student safety and staff safety and well-being, equality legislation, charities legislation and so on. So what we decided to do was uh, to look into this, to set up a working group uh, to try and clarify what the uh, obligations were so that however it is that universities chose to respond to these sorts of situations, there would at least be some uh, clarity about the framework in which we were operating in. And this was the report uh, that we published, that Janet's referred to, which is on our website, Freedom of Speech on Campus, Rights and Responsibilities in UK Universities. And I have to say, it got criticised pretty much by everyone for extraordinarily different reasons, from, um, to put it rather crudely, from sections of government, because we hadn't engaged with the prevent agenda in a sufficiently enthusiastic way, this is a pretty crude summary, um, from many groups who felt that we hadn't um, supported restrictions on uh, external speakers to the extent that we should have, from universities for not being um, clear enough about how important freedom of speech is, even though I think it was pretty clear in there that that was uh, what we were driving at, and also from, uh, well, from a wide range of people who felt that um, we hadn't been precise enough, I guess, in saying what was acceptable and what wasn't. And I'll come back to that because that was very deliberate and indeed that's not a question that can be answered in any uh, prescriptive and clear way. 
Um, but um, what the report did uh, conclude, and the working group did conclude, was that we had to hold on to the primacy of freedom of speech in universities for a matter of principle as well as a matter of law. And the principle is this, this is summarised in the foreword. Um, universities, by their very definition, and I'm quoting here from the report, are open universities, <coughs> where open institutions, where academic freedom and freedom of speech are fundamental to their functioning, where debate, challenge and dissent are not only permitted but expected, and where controversial and offensive ideas are likely to be advanced. Intellectual freedom is fundamental to their mission, their teaching and their research. So that was the point of principle that underpins a lot of this. We also then looked at the legal framework, and I think it's important to bear in mind what this says, because it's quite uh, significant, I think, to how we are obliged to approach this issue. Uh, there are two specific bits of uh, legislation. One is the Education Reform Act, which deals with academic freedom. And what this says is that academic freedom means that academic staff have freedom, academic staff note, have freedom within the law to question and test received wisdom, to put forward new ideas and controversial or unpopular opinions without placing themselves in jeopardy of losing their jobs or privileges. So that protects academic freedom. But then there's another piece of legislation which goes further than that, which is about free speech. And this applies to everyone, to visiting speakers, to staff, to everyone who's on... Uh, campus, if you like, and what it says is this, this is the Education Act in 1986, persons concerned in the government of universities shall take such steps as are reasonably practical to ensure that freedom of speech within the law is secured for members, students and employees and for visiting speakers. And I think the important thing about both those provisions is that there is a proactive obligation, particularly in relation to the freedom of speech provisions, to, on universities to promote free speech unless it is constrained uh, by other um, legis legislative provisions. So, in other words, there's a burden of proof in favour of freedom of speech unless there's legal rights which constrain you. Now, obviously, you know, the law is the law. You can make what you like of it. But nonetheless, that, that is a pretty powerful presumption in favour of the principle which I outlined um, initially. And clearly, what we therefore had to do is look at what the legal constraints were, safety, equality, charities legislation, terrorism, public order offences. It ended up being quite complicated. But what it does mean, in practical terms, is this. Is when you're approaching these sorts of issues, you do have to be aware of what the law says, because that does define the framework within which you make a decision as to whether or not something's acceptable or not. And um, what is also very clear from all of this is that you simply cannot be uh, prescriptive about what's acceptable and what is not. And this is why we ran up with difficulties from people who criticised us, because they wanted us to say, in these circumstances, you cannot have a visiting speaker that says X, Y, and Z. And we simply, uh, it, it's simply not possible to do that. And um, what it does mean, of course, is that there remains a degree of uncertainty, albeit that the ring, if you like, in which these issues are determined is to some extent clarified. And uh, one of the conclusions, I think, from the, from the report is that context is absolutely critical in all of this. And in determining what's acceptable and what isn't, uh, does have to take into account the context. For instance, it may well be appropriate for a university to decide that an academic can do research in a deeply problematic and controversial area. 
However, it may not be appropriate for them to be addressing students as part of their undergraduate uh, provision uh, and tuition uh, because that's a very different context and it may cause real concerns for those students. It may uh, lead them to feel undermined in terms of their own cultural identity. Uh, it may make them feel deeply insecure about their, their race uh, and the context will determine whether or not a particular view is advanced. And also I think it depends a lot on how issues are portrayed, whether they're presented in an intimidating light or uh, a, a spirit of inquiry, of debate. And all those sorts of things have such an impact on how these things are determined that it is really impossible to be uh, prescriptive. Uh, what, however, I think is uh, an issue is that if you're not going to be prescriptive about what's acceptable and what isn't, then you've got to have some pretty clear and transparent procedures which, are, uh, which allow the decision to be made and allow people to contribute to the assessment of whether or not a particular individual, for example, should be allowed to speak on campus. And one of the things that we are doing, working uh, with various groups, um, particularly uh, religious groups, uh, is to develop um, a clearer... Uh, approach to speaker protocols which could then be used by institutions so that's something that we do need to follow up and we will indeed uh, be doing so um, I two, two conclusions from all of this I think we have at universities UK um, I think we have to remain um, pretty clear about the primacy of freedom of speech from both a point of view of principle but also a point of view of the correct interpretation of the law I think we have to be profoundly sympathetic to some of the concerns that have been expressed across universities about how um, undermining some uh, expressions of opinions can be and make sure that we do whatever needs to be done to support people in, the, in those particular situations. So I think there needs to be a sensitivity and awareness uh, that goes alongside the promotion of, of, of free speech. Uh, but um, there is another issue here, and I was very struck by a comment made the other day. I was participating in a, in a session uh, to support and encourage uh, graduates with disabilities to participate in, in public life and become leaders. And uh, it, was, um, it was a fairly low-key event, but it started by an announcement from the chair that the way the day would be conducted uh, would require everyone participating in the session to uh, accept two responsibilities. One was a responsibility not to give offence, and the other was a responsibility not to take an offence. And I thought that was a fantastic way of formulating what actually we tried to get at in this report, that, that there's a, part, a, 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 a dual responsibility here in terms of acknowledging that freedom of speech means uh, not only that uh, people are going to be expressing views that we ourselves might find offensive, but in expressing those views, we have to make sure that we don't needlessly cause offence. And I think it's somewhere in that middle position between wanting to not give offence, but also not wanting to take offence, that some kind of solution may lie. But I think our conclusion is that this has to remain uh, an area where we prescribe at our peril, uh, but we make sure that firstly we are promoting and fostering freedom of speech, but doing it within tra a transparent framework that everyone can engage with. Okay, thank you very much, both of you. I mean, I, I see it from the front line as the pro-director in the LSE is always 
explained uh, from one side or the other side but when we hold a, a public lecture. I, I mean, I'll just sort of share one thought, then throw it open in a way. And I, I think I've never met anybody at the LSE who hasn't believed in the freedom of speech. But whenever there's a problem, I always get the, the, the comment to me, I fully believe in the freedom of speech, but... <laughs> so I think it would be very, very hard to find someone who would challenge that. And I think our problem is that freedom of speech within the law actually means in practice that almost anybody speaks. There's almost nobody that's excluded under those grounds. So I think in a way, I almost find that a, a sort of an unnecessary procedure because it always, almost goes without saying. The, ne the next question then is, where are the restraints? We're in a community, as Sue said, where are the restraints and who imposes those restraints? Because I think there clearly there have to be restraints in order for people to live together in a community. And it's, it's not clear to us who, 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 who imposes those constraints. I mean, in an ideal world, it would be self-censorship, I suppose. But that, that's not clear to me, and that's something the audience would discuss. And I think the other very sensitive issue that you know, I've been aware of is, yes, you can cause offence, and it actually says in that report that it's not bad to be offended. You can be offended, but there's offence and offence. And my experience over five years as pro-director is that there are some things which everybody agrees are offensive. They're usually racist. They're quite often sexist. No one disputes that. But once you get into the areas of, of religion, of Islam, of Sharia law, of the state of Israel, the boundaries between criticising Israel and not criticising uh, Jews. I mean, that's where I, I think it's, it's so much more difficult. So it's quite glib and easy, I think, for us to say that no one on campus should make a racist comment and no one should be on campus who has any, any suspicion of their races. But should any Israeli politician be allowed on campus? Of course they can. There's always a protest. Uh, should anybody come on, on campus and speak on campus if we know they have said things in their sermons on Sharia law that some people will find offensive? Uh, other things, it seems perfectly acceptable for uh, people to be uh, offended. So I think that, that's the problem. You might say that's fashion in, in a way, but they're the things that matter to the community at the moment. So, you know, much as I think freedom of speech is a jolly good thing, and I think we all would, <laughs> the reality for us on a day-to-day -day basis is it's not freedom of speech which is the problem. It's the particular sensitivities which are the problem uh, within a community that we then have to deal with. I don't know if you want to comment on whether I should just throw that one open. <laughs> Please. Um, I, I'd like to press Sue on um, what exactly is wrong with, with Mill's argument and the treatments with respect to, you mentioned truth and autonomy, because I think what that Williams quotation about universities being highly regulated is, is spot on. And, and some of that regulation is informal. Or, or operates through different through different disciplines in defining what questions are acceptable for discussion. But when it comes to the debate that will generate the pursuit of truth, in in particular, what particular perspectives is it legitimate to take into account? Let, let me give an example from this building, which I think was the one that when the Queen opened. Mm -hmm. During the financial crash, she asked why oh, yes. economists had failed mm -hmm. to anticipate mm -hmm. what happened. Now, I don't think she was given the right answer, which is <laughs> because um, the economics profession has become dominated 
by an increasingly narrow neoclassical orthodoxy, which is simply defined as illegitimate, all, all, all sorts of other, other perspectives. Now, that example identifies the, the importance, but also the difficulty of defining the boundaries of what is a legitimate part of the, the discussion. So, uh, just to, but to, to, to return to the question, question of principle, you see, one might say that, um, for example, the, the feminist critique of freedom of speech um, that you refer to can be justified in terms, for example, of autonomy, in other words, a value that, that Mill sees as crucial. So, you know, I think there's a strong case for saying that student unions shouldn't put, up, put on um, pole dancing classes because that's insulting to women. And why is that, why is that so important? Critically, because it's a violation or threat to their autonomy. Um, so that would be a million justification in that case for a certain restriction of, of freedom of speech. So anyway, okay. I'd like to right. those I'd examples and the issues. Okay, thanks. Look, I, I'm not denying that arguments, I'm not saying that arguments from truth and arguments from autonomy are never any good. And they, they clearly are. They're important considerations. And, and Mill is, 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 seems to me, right to, 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 to emphasise them. My thinking is just this, that very often, when the question's asked, why should we have freedom of speech, Mill says, well, but because of its importance for truth, and then he gives four accounts, four reasons. Now, quite a lot of the speech that we're thinking of in these contexts is not speech, it seems to me, that aims at truth. Quite, when we're dealing with controversial issues about freedom of speech, it's very often the right of people, the alleged right of people, to be rude or insulting or and the, the kinds of things that, 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 that were often said um, about, and indeed to, women in the 1960s, and it was nothing to do with truth, and racist claims are nothing to do with truth very often, all to do with insult and offence and invective. So it's that, that is not to say that truth is unimportant, it's just to say that very often people who... Um, people who, who wish to pursue their own agenda will hide beneath or behind the um, importance of truth as a justification for causing all kinds of legitimate offence and outrage. It's just, so it's a caveat, really. On the autonomy point, and so, you know, I, in a way, Alex, I, I, you know, I, I, I put my hand up, you know, I, I express it in the speech, in the talk, I expressed it too, too crudely. On the matter of autonomy, though, um, you know, the debate between Ronald Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon was a debate in which Ronald Dworkin says we must allow freedom of speech because of its importance for the development of autonomy. And McKinnon's reply is to live in a world in which, as a woman, you are, as it were, breathing air that is that is sexist air where pornographic material is just available right across WH Smith 
um, for all the world to, to, to see and wade through, is to live in a world in which you, you necessarily feel devalued, you necessarily feel that, that you have no voice of your own. Now, I think she overstates it quite dramatically, but I think she has a very considerable point that um, it's, it's not, it is not an accident, so it seemed to me, that, that page three of The Sun was tremendously popular um, on building sites, and that every time you walk past a building site, lewd comments would be shouted out at you. And, and that's, so it's not as if there's, there is autonomy. Freedom for the fox is death for the chicken. It's not the case that, that we must have freedom of speech in order to secure autonomy. Sometimes freedom of speech given to the pornographer serves to stifle and damage autonomy. Sometimes, not always. So that would be my, my, my response. But not to say that there's never any truth in, in, in the argument from truth and autonomy, but it, we, need, we need to be careful about who is using this argument and for what purpose. So talk too much. It's just the philosophers coming in. <laughs> <Luke. laughs> so I'm actually thinking, you know, what, why would it be the case that certain things I would tolerate in various media that I wouldn't tolerate it in the university context. I mean, suppose that this is my position and I now need to give some kind of justification for it, right? Now, it seems to me that what I could say is something like, well, a university is an educational institution and one of the things that we need to teach, what, you know, part of our mission is respectful speech. And now, that's the sort of thing that you know, I wouldn't hold various media accountable for. But for university, I feel like that is our mission, and so respectful speech is what I want to teach students, and so that's the reason why I wouldn't tolerate certain things, which I would think are perfectly fine in the BBC, perfectly fine in the newspaper, but not in my university. And then, of course, I could connect that with your point about, well, why do I care about respectful speech? Well, I care about respectful speech because it is true it conducive. And, and that's why I would push it in the university. Okay. Well, and that's why I would put okay. constraints in the university on freedom okay. of speech beyond the constraints I would put in the media. Can I, okay, can I pick up two parts? And, and I want to agree with you on, on one, but not on the other. Um, the, the, um, you, you said what we do in the university is teach respectful speech. I mean, to be honest, I don't think I do teach respectful speech. I mean, not in the sense that I encourage disrespectful speech, but I don't think it's part of my job to teach respectful speech. I simply think that respect for other people is the precondition on which, you know, anything, without respect, you're not going to get very far. Let's put it that way. You're up against the buffers. But I don't honestly think that it's my job to teach it. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, that's not what I think. Well, I would agree with you, and it was something that Nicola raised, and which I think needs um, um, is important and needs unpacking, and that is the significance of context. I mean, it does seem to me that what's permissible and what isn't depends quite a lot on, on context. And uh, you know, just, I'll mention an example, which isn't to do with universities, but it, it, does, it just intrigues me a lot. And it's, it's an, the example of Holocaust denial. Now, that's not, a, that's not an offence in this country. It's not a criminal offence in this country. It is in Austria, as I understand it. Now, I think there are really important and difficult questions about whether that's right, 
And if so, why? So I'm very clear that the context matters. I mean, I just have a kind of gut instinct that context is terrifically important and that there are all kinds of things which it might be legitimate to do in a seminar room at the University of York or to say, which are not legitimate to say you know, on the street. Maybe things it's legitimate to say in North Yorkshire. It's not legitimate to say in Austria. I'm open, but but if, you, if you press me on how context matters, and you made this point, context very important, and I think it is, but if you ask, well, just what is its important, importance, I think that's, that's, a really, that's a really difficult one to uh, articulate. Do you want to comment on, on sort of those sort of constraints, really, which Luke was saying that we, we yes. have to have? I, I, th I mean, this, this is a, a philosophical issue, so it goes in, in large part beyond my brief, but nonetheless... I, I do think that there is a difficulty in invoking truth as some kind of justification for saying something uh, or not saying something in the context of a university, simply because that's such a subjective issue as to someone's truth is someone else's falsehood. And it's so, um, it's so uh, compromised by where people are coming from that I think it's difficult to invoke it as a, as a steer as to what's acceptable in terms of as free speech within the, the university context. And certainly one of the things I was struck by uh, in terms of the responses to this particular report is people were passionate, as you quite rightly say, Janet, they were saying, but I believe in freedom of speech, but you cannot allow the speaker to come on campus. But it seems to me that really missed the point about what free speech is about, which really has to be a very inclusive and broad definition that doesn't allow for... Um, compromised definitions and uh, as to what is true for, for, for one person. Uh, so surely we have to approach this in a completely sort of neutral way, and that may have consequences that allows lap dancing on universities. I think we have to sort of acknowledge mm -hmm. that that may be part of it. I find that profoundly offensive, but I, I, I can't see how it can be uh, excluded uh, from this debate, because otherwise we start saying, well, that's offensive to me, so that's my truth. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel slightly uneasy about that uh, as a way of constraining well, yeah, I, definitions of free I, speech. I don't want, would want to say in advance that this couldn't, couldn't happen or shouldn't happen, but, but you know, I'm rather with Alex, I think there are jolly good reasons for saying that, it's, that I would be pretty worried if it were the sort of thing that came to have popularity or a following amongst men I teach in my university. Well, yes, but, but surely the answer should be, well, then we have to engage on a rational basis and explain <laughs> why it's deeply offensive, it undermines women, um, that it has all... I mean, the, the, the logic of the argument is yeah. it's got to be a rational response rather than excluding it. And I'm not sure that we can pick and choose on this basis. I happen to agree with you about lap dancing, but you know, I'm not going to say, well, therefore, we're going to ban lap dancing, no, no, the, but we're not going to ban, ban an Islamic speaker no, because I think that's, that, a, no, that's, a, that has that's a big move. I mean, let, let's be clear. You know, that's a big move from the, from the thought that you, you, one dislikes or disapproves of something. It's a big step to, therefore, it is to be banned. And there are all sorts of ways of dealing with things which are just irrationally disliked or rationally disapproved of, which don't involve, you know, as it were, the nuclear button of, of, the, of the law or, or banning or restricting. It's, it's, it's much, much slower than that. I agree, but sorry, I'm speaking too much here, but, but surely the, 
the point here is that there is not only a, a, a legal prima facie assumption in favour of free speech, but actually we really do believe in the power of rational debate to, um, to, to address some of these concerns. And therefore the reason why uh, lap dancing should perhaps be allowed to take place on campus um, is precisely so that it can generate a discussion uh, which then leads rationally to the conclusion that this is, this is damaging and demeans women. I mean, that has to be the logic of the argument. It's not always rational and logical, I think. <laughs> uh, I've got several questions. Please, please, uh, and then there's somebody back. Uh, can I ask you, what's the purpose of freedom of speech? Why there should be a freedom of speech? And if you cannot discuss controversial and political issues uh, on the campus, where can you discuss these things? I was just going to say, there are several people who asked some questions. I, I think I might collect a, a few questions. So I'll take your turn. There was one here in the middle, and then there's you, Joe. together as this, they, they, they link them. Nico, do you want to, 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 to answer or to attempt an answer? I agree with both yeah. of them actually, which is not mm. a very helpful response. I mean, I think that's absolutely mm. right. If you can't do it in universities, where can you? And I think um, to some extent there, there has to be a, a greater threshold of tolerance in universities precisely because it feels to me at the moment, given the complexities of the world that we operate in globally, there's something very precious about uh, 
having a place where offensive ideas can be debated and tested and challenged. And it just feels you can't have that in many places, but you can in universities. And I think we've got to hold on to that as being something really profoundly important. And, um, but having said that, I also entirely agree with that. I should pick up, sorry, very quickly, a point that you made. And of course, banning someone is, is, is extreme. And there's all sorts of sort of contextualizing and modifying ways that you can accommodate different views. And I think that addresses your point that we're not really talking about having someone speaking on campus or not. It's how you position it and how you respond to it and how you make sure that people are feeling reassured and that you can confirm, say, I mean, say it's an anti-Semitic speaker, how can you make sure, providing it's not unlawful, you can make sure that Jewish students feel secure and protected and valued. So there's ways of dealing with it. And I think that's where the gradation between um, you know, offensive and more offensive and unacceptable comes in. It seems to me we have ex the, the way in which the question's phrased is, is, is really very important. I mean, as a matter of fact, there is a huge presumption in favour of freedom of speech in universities in this, in this country. And that's why we're asking this question where are the limits and where, on, on what grounds and in what context is it legitimate to curb that? We wouldn't be asking that question if there weren't already a very, very strong presumption in favour of people saying, coming to universities and saying the things that they, that they want to say. So we need to be clear about that. And I think we also, I don't be Pollyanna-ish about it, but I think we also need to be, to be clear about the extent to which, as a matter of fact, most of the time, People do come to universities and, 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 and say things which others find offensive. They do debate, they do discuss, they do annoy one another. That's, that is the, you know, that's the norm, really, is, is that people, um, people argue with, with, with one another and, and do so in a way that's more or less constructive. So what's going on here is just a question about it just, that's not to, to diminish it. It's a very important question, but it's a question about the limits of that. And everything has limits. And it's very important to discover what these, what these limits are and why they're where they are. But I suppose what I want to say is, look, it's, it speaks in favour of the importance of, that we accord freedom of speech, that the burden of proof is, is falling where it is, namely on those who wish to curb it. I think from, from my perspective, and you're quite right, I mean, one, one wouldn't want to... You know, ban a, a, a talk because of the impact on the reputation of the school, and yet, of course, it does have an impact on the mm. reputation of the school, and it'd be silly to deny that. And sometimes it's, it's not just that the content of, of the particular talk or the, the fact that it gets into the Daily Mail, it, it's, it's the weight of it, that if, if in any particular year it looks as if constantly, constantly, constantly the same sort of issues are coming up, then the school does get that reputation, and then it would be foolish to deny it and say, well, you know, that's fine because of freedom of speech. And getting that sort of balance on campus is also, in a way, sort of out of our hands. Uh, because it's very much dependent on the particular interests of the students at the time, and particular societies that put things forward. And then, you know, an image is, 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 is created, uh, which is one that the LSE might not want to project, but nevertheless is there. So, I mean, I, I don't think, you know, we're, we're conscious of that one, even though we don't try and curb it. It'd be foolish to, de to deny it. I just want to raise a couple of issues about the changing nature of the, of the university itself, because... Um, as we said, law only gets you so far, so we're all 
it seems to me we're all talking about some sort of communitarian understanding of, of ethical engagement and, and some sense of sort of McIntyre um, uh, virtue ethics kind of way of living together. Um, but the, the very sense in which a university is a community, I think, is changing quite a lot, and particularly perhaps with uh, a central London university like LSE, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, people are coming uh, from all over the world, different nations and different cultures, which we all know brings great richness, but it does mean that community doesn't emerge as spontaneously and as, uh, um, as monoculturally, which, uh, which does bring strong community. And secondly, because of the whole issue of the virtual and how the virtual uh, and modern communication has um, really blown away the boundary between what is the university community and the public, the outside. It's very difficult to have an event of the LSE which is contained in any way. Uh, you know, even a, 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 I mean, we really have to kind of police that if we want to do that. Also, through the virtual, the sense of what is. I mean, a lot of what takes up Janet's and my time is also, you know, what is said by students or about students or about events that are happening at LSE before or after they happen in the virtual world. And that's really changed the nature of, uh, it, it's, it's, again, it makes it very difficult to contain a community. So I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on those, those aspects. Yes, I, sorry if I can just come up with a, two, two, two comments on that. I think you're absolutely right to identify those, those factors as um, uh, particularly internationalisation and the permeability, I guess, between the community and the outside world. And uh, one, one of the things that I think we found at UK, to our surprise, is that this assumption, the presumption in favour of free speech is not one that's necessarily uh, acknowledged to the extent that it should be by uh, other people, by other countries, by international students, but certainly by government um, and politicians. And I, I don't think we should um, underestimate how important it is to be reasserting the importance of, of free speech in that context, precisely given what's happening, precisely because of the permeability of the community. Um, and in a way, I guess, the way that um, Maybe one can respond to issues about reputation and you know, association of, of the university with various external speakers or researchers, whatever it may be, is precisely by endorsing and referring to, to, to the issue of free speech as really determining the context in which these issues have to, have to be uh, worked out. And I'm not sure we do that enough. I think we do have to be shouting from the rooftops about free speech, even well, precisely because of that permeability that you identify. But coming back, I mean, of course, there are, that goes hand in hand with an increased burden on institutions to make sure that people do feel secure about their own identities. So I think the more we shout about free speech, the more we have to make sure that the safeguards are in place, not to stop free speech, to make, but to make sure that, say, an international student is not feeling undermined because of their religion or whatever it may be. So in a way, it's just more of all of these things. But I, surely what's important in all of this is making making clear our commitment to free speech and I think that's all the more necessary. I, I don't recognise this um, account of uh, everyone accepting that free speech is fine. I have to say that's not our experience. The world, we were under huge pressure to, to pull back on free speech, to say that there are speakers who cannot speak in any circumstances, to be really quite absolute and prescriptive about it. And that was very real pressure. Can I take this in a different direction? I mean, I am both pleased and alarmed 
by your reference to McIntyre. Um, <laughs> because, you know, McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre in, in the books called The, the Virtue Trilogy um, comes to, to the conclusion that um, it's, it's, pardon? We're all doomed. We're all, we're all doomed. We're all doomed. Um, no, we're, we're, not, we're not all doomed. Um, we're, we're all doomed if, if and only if um, we continue with the open liberal university that accepts all sorts. And McIntyre's thought is, well, you know, the, the importance of community is that there can only be a community amongst people who share a common background. Now, how common that background has to be is, you know, it's, it's an open question. Nonetheless, his, his, his claim is that institutions like you know, the University of York or the LSE that, that say, well, let, let a thousand flowers bloom are ones in which there will not be the appropriate kind of community for fostering um, and promoting understanding and, and knowledge. And so, you know, I, 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 on the negative side, I see what he's saying. I hear him, as, as they say. But, of course, his, his response to that is then to say, what we have to have is universities in which people share a common background of some sort or another. So you, will not, so you won't have the open liberal university. You'll have the, the university. You'll have the Christian university. You'll have the Islamic university. You have, now, you know, at that point... And I, you know, I, I always sort of think of it this way when I when I teach teach McIntyre. I I just feel I want to get off the train. I mean, I you know I've come this way when as the train goes on and he says, well, you know, we're all doomed and we lack community and we lack a sense of solidarity. I think yes, this is right. And then he says, so what we have to do is basically abandon you know, places like the LSE in favour of smaller universities in which people, in which everybody is aware of, let's say, you know, the importance of Christ as our, as our saviour, and well, no, not, 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 that's where I want to get off the train. So I think there's a dark, there is a very dark side to, to McIntyre in particular, but also to, in fairness, to, you know, the, the, the claim I made, the point I made rather, rather briskly about universities as communities, I, I think we, we need to handle that with caution. There's a question right, right at the back. Something that will, I'll take with me and I'll haunt, will haunt me forever. 
in my development as a human being, as, as a woman, as a, as a black person. And so I, I just wonder, like, uh, are, are we really, are we taking into consideration how detrimental events can really be to members of the community, and students and young people as well? It's a good question. <laughs> I think I don't, many students feel that way. I mean, yes. I, I think they, they genuinely do. They, 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 they feel offended at the end of a lecture, upset, feel they shouldn't be put in that situation. And sometimes feel almost like they have to be put in that situation. Uh, you know, they're a Jewish student and they feel they have to go to the Palestinian lecture because they have to be there, they have to listen, they have to counter it. And in a way, they, they have to be upset by it. And I, I think there's, there's been a very strong pressure uh, for, them, for them to feel that way. Yeah, yeah I, you put that incredibly well. It would, be, it would be hard to disagree with anything you said, which I think is why context is so important, because I was primarily speaking about um, external speakers coming onto campus, which I think is entirely different from what you're describing, which is your experience in a, in a seminar or even in a lecture. And I, do, I, I absolutely think you're, you're right in the sense that there has to be um, an acknowledgement of your right to, to, to respect because of your own identity in that context. But where I, I think I, it's, it's different is if we're talking about an external speaker coming on. And I, I really think that a lot of what I've been saying has been directed to that sort of thing. Um, and I do think that's very different. And if a speaker comes onto campus to say something, a visiting speaker, a visiting academic, or whoever they may be, that does feel to me very, very different. You've got the right to walk out of that, and it won't affect your experience of you, you know, university or, or stay. But it's surely that is different to what you're experiencing in a seminar. Do, do, do you think there's not a difference there between the two different contexts? In, in part, I think it depends who's speaking to be honest, because if it's, if it's somebody it's because, because when, some, when a place like the LSC invites invite somebody, you're legitimizing them, and to an extent you're acknowledging, and I, 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 there, there's, there's a slight distinction, but to an extent the institution is legitimizing and acknowledging this person as an academic, when, like, and I think historically there are people who are once called academics or we, that we will say now, like, well, they're madmen, they're racist, they exist, and pretty much most of their stuff has been unfounded. I'm thinking specifically about um, sociologists and people that spoke about race. And so I acknowledge that it's perhaps a, a small distinction, but I still feel like I, I would be upset. I would still be upset that my university had them here. And it, it, it's slightly different, but I still think it matters. I, I, I think that's, I, I put a lot of weight on that. And again, I, I do not think that it legitimizes banning someone necessarily. But I think too often the debate is couched in terms of if you don't like it, you can walk out. Or if you don't like it, you don't have to go. And that seems to me inadequate because there are some contexts in which, as you, as you I mean, just repeat back to you what you said very well yourself, there are some contexts in which one might feel but my own institution is legitimizing this attitude towards women or whatever. And the, and the case where it seems to me, it's not a university case, but a case where this was very, very important but not often recognized was the, the very famous, notorious Rushdie case in Satanic Verses where it seemed to me a large part of the objection was, was not simply that what, what Rushdie had written was offensive, though it was. A large part of the objection was and this is what you people give a prize to. 
you say this is now the best thing that's come out of British literature, Commonwealth literature, in the past 12 months. Now, that may be right and it may be wrong, but I think it's the, it's the, the sense that something is, in the first place, hugely offensive, and in the second place, legitimized or held up that is causing the trouble. And in all of this, I think it's absolutely crucial to understand what it is that's causing the offense or causing the trouble. And, and it is the legitimation of something. It doesn't follow that people must not be invited. It doesn't follow, but it, but it, it, it is. It does follow that that, that 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 is where the nerve is. It's that nerve that's hit. You, you, with that, you had, a, you had your hand up for some time. Um, so two things you mentioned regarding the um, argument of Mill, when it comes to truth, you said like it's, it uh, could undermine autonomy or hide or avoid truth if you have freedom of speech, was the first thing, um, where I think um, it's, it's not necessarily uh, always about truth, but rather about an exchange of opinions. So this is unnecessarily rational, this is the first point, because when it gets controversial, then emotions come into play, and this is the reason why, why uh, the discussion is not necessarily rational, and I guess we have to keep that in mind, um, because not everyone is like an academic uh, and having a rational discussion. Um, the um, second thing is, uh, I guess freedom of speech gives people like burden of responsibility if you, if you want to have a look at that because it's hard to regulate that. Um, then again, uh, freedom of speech doesn't necessarily obviously lead to I insult other people, right? But the point is, uh, if you have no formal regulation of respect, how can you, how can you make sure um, that this respect is actually there? And I guess that's kind of hard, but um, so, you do, so you have to um, trust or believe in in other people that they will be respectful. And I guess um, if, if you have freedom of speech, then you may tend to be more respectful than <coughs> you wouldn't have it because you're not regulated, right? So this is, this is the notion of, okay. uh, of empathy or sympathy in the way uh, Richard Sennett was here. He, he, told yeah. about, he talked about yeah. it. Um, um, empathy, for instance, in that sense that you talk to other people you may not understand uh, what he's saying, um, so there's no rational conclusion for you. But what you may understand is that uh, what he's saying has a certain value to him. Okay. I'm not sure I have anything to say about the second point, but I would like to say something about the first point, about Mill on, on truth. I mean, Alex pressed me at the beginning on you know, why, why I was giving Mill a hard time. And I mean, one reason I'm giving Mill a hard time or distancing myself a bit from, from the argument from truth is that in um, modern liberal writers, John Rawls for instance, in Political Liberalism says, at the act, he, he says what we, what we live with is the fact of pluralism and pluralism is permanent. That's to say different people have very different ideas about religion, about morality, about the best way to lead your life and that 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 condition is permanent. It's not going to go away. We aren't going to convert everybody to our way of thinking. What's more, he says, this is a reason for celebration. We shouldn't be sad about this. That sort of diversity is the natural outcome, says Rawls, of the operation of reason under conditions of freedom. So to, to, to regret the fact, lament the fact, that people have different views about, let's say, about God, um, 
is 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 to to regret the fact that we that reason, that we have that we have reason. Reason isn't going to converge in many of these cases. Reason will will give us different outcomes. Now I'm not sure whether that's that's right or not, but I I, I think it's it's not implausible to think that there will be many many contexts in which reason and rational argument will not deliver a single answer. It will deliver diversity. Got some more questions. So I think I might take a batch of, of questions because, uh, you know, time is pressing. I know there's, there's one here and one here. I'll take these two. Okay. Um, I was wondering about what would count as speech in this context, and whether the same uh, sort of provisions that have been raised would count in uh, less than obviously linguistic media like artworks, which may be provocative. Drama, which is obviously linguistic, but where there is a different, you know, you may have different conflicting views, for instance. Or even, or even um, fashion um, items address on things. That's, I think that's an important one. I'll take another question, not you know, reflecting on your question anyway, because time's pressing, so we have uh, a couple of questions. You have a question, so... Yeah, just, it's perhaps more of an observation. So one thing that occurred to me during this discussion um, was that there seems to be a, somewhat of a tension. So on the one hand, people are saying, well, university should be the very place where you can express your opinions, and if you can't express controversial issues at a university, where can you? So freedom of speech, in a way, should be... Um, stronger as we're in university compared to other settings, but then there seemed to be emerging a, a second thread which sort of was opposing to that, where people said, well, but look, we're also at a university, we're also in a, in a sense a particular kind of community, and maybe being that sort of community warrants putting certain limitations on freedom of speech that we wouldn't put on freedom of speech outside of the university context. So some people said, look, some people some things you can say outside of a university setting which you shouldn't be able to say in a university setting. So I was just sort of wondering what, what you were thinking about this kind of tension and whether perhaps the question that we're ultimately coming to is as what kind of community do we see ourselves um, in a university? Is it a community of scholars that is just about rational debate, seeking truth, understanding the causes of things, no matter what, or are there other aspects that are central to university community that have to come into play here? And if so, what are these? Okay, you've got a very general one, but it's also, I think, a very important point as well about, you know, beyond speech, which I, I know, you know, also exercises actually. Uh, I personally don't like teaching somebody when I can't see their face fully. I mean, you know, is that an inappropriate thing to say, you know? I just don't like it. And I, and I think that there's our issues as well. We've also had issues on, with art on campus as well. Uh, and you know, where are the boundaries, again, of good taste? It's a very good question in terms of how far you define free speech, but I simply can't, from where I'm sitting, I can't see there's any difference at all in any of these media. And uh, I mean, a good example is someone wearing a, a burqa, and I can't, uh, personally, I, I cannot understand any justification for um, suggesting someone shouldn't wear a, a, a veil or a burqa. I mean, what. It, in, unless in very limited circumstances where there are communication issues, but I think they're so limited that I simply cannot understand how one can uh, suggest that these sorts of principles don't apply to how people choose to express themselves through, through fashion or through art, and I, I, I would suggest that the same applies across the piece. Um, 
And I, I think that's a really important point about how you define the community. And I guess what we're saying here is that actually we do define it by reference to rational debate. And I think if we shift from that, we're in dangerous territory. Can I take the, the previous one on, on, on what counts as speech? A jolly good question. Um, there have been, in the United States, um, there, there is legislation covering, covering what's called fighting words. So, and, and, it's, and it, it comes in some part from, from Mill again, from Mill's thought that there is a point at which words themselves become action. They are no longer words, he says. They become, they become themselves actions. They become, as it were, a slap across the face. And at that point, freedom of speech, um, legislation, uh, freedom of speech is, is, um, is not honoured in the same way because this isn't speech anymore, this is action. So the thought is, and the thought in the United States is, is I, I can address words to you which have the form of just a kick in the teeth. They're, they're fighting words. Now, I, you know, I must say, I've, I've, I, I understand what's being said, but I, I have grave reservations about, about that because it's not clear to me how we would make a distinction between words which are only words. I, I, it's hard to speak inverted commas, but let me try. Words which are only words and words which are the equivalent of an aggressive and violent action. But, sorry, that's just to say, it's not to answer your question, it's to say I can't answer it, but I think it's an important one to answer. Can I say one other thing about, there was talk about art and so on, before coming down here, I, I listened to um, the podcast of a debate two years ago on the occasion of the anniversary of the Lady Chatterley trial as that, of course, is a case where freedom of speech is. And it was spectacular. So if you, you can get it off the website. I, mean, I don't know whether it will illuminate in the right way, but it, it really, really is terrific as a debate about how that, telling you about how the trial was conducted and the considerations that were involved and the expert evidence that was brought to bear. And I mean, it really is just a cracking um, hour, hour and a half. So, so you know, give yourself a treat. We have had issues here at the LSC about a form of speech in a public lecture, and that's uh, a sermon, which you know, is part of an act of worship. We wouldn't normally check beforehand who was speaking, what they were saying, uh, whether it was inappropriate, uh, and yet, you know, it, it could be uh, offensive. And I think that one has also tested us, in, in fact. I mean, uh, in the end, I, I think that the same rules have to apply across the campus, whether it's in the classroom, in the lecture room, uh, you know, inside a Muslim prayer room, in a chaplaincy, uh, in the street, which actually we have no uh, control over because it's not our property. All those things tend to apply. But the sort of procedures we put in place to check and regulate are quite different. Please. Um, can I take up a few of the issues? Because when we talk about freedom of speech, it's very much an abstract term. And you started off by referring to Mill. And I think the problem there is that you have to... How would Mill feel today about issues which were not prevalent in the 19th century when he was writing? He, he obviously had <coughs> views which were not common, as we well know, on women, etc. But he 
you have to look at it within a historical context. So that's, that's my first point. My second point is that, again, you have to, when you talk about freedom of speech, within the ambit of a university. We're not talking about speech in a wider context. So, for example, let's take the famous debate between Huxley and Wilberforce at, at Oxford, right? How would that have been repeated if it had been at the LSC, right? So, I, I think, again, it's a question of context as well, but I think the important issue is when we're talking about a university, is seeking for truth and indulging in dialogue. So if you have if you have a speaker who's coming here who's prepared to indulge in dialogue, right, and is not just putting over a point of view. I won't say it'd be offensive because that's not really the, but in order to stir up, I can't think of any other term at the moment, to stir up discontent and uh, that sort of issue, whether that is within, without, it goes beyond the bounds of free speech within the ambit of a, of a university. So I, I think that there are there are issues there. And when you referred to the legislation in America, right, there have been cases. There was the famous Holmes case who ruled that anarchists who were sending around pamphlets, etc., wasn't against the constitution. Wasn't against the constitution. So it comes back to looking at the context in which these things are being said and are we looking to engage in dialogue and it may well be as the lady said about if you're in a seminar you have an opportunity if the chair is strong enough to ensure that there is this dialogue but when it, it's a um, a speech that is not in the seminar, then I think there are different there are different issues. And on one last point, if I may, the reason for the legislation against denial in Austria as a historic yes, yes, absolutely. Sorry, that was that was I was taking that as read, but yes, absolutely, there's a strong historical reason, very strong historical reason for that. Um, I'm conscious that time is passing, yes. but th there is what you say is very interesting and very pertinent, and I, it reminds me of an argument that's been advanced eloquently by Honor O'Neill on the importance of freedom of speech, and her her thought is that we don't justify freedom of speech simply by reference to truth, nor by reference to autonomy, but also by reference to the significance of communication. And it's it's not it it isn't important that people just be allowed to sound off with whatever they think. What's important is that is that they should communicate in a way that other, such that other people understand them and are capable of 
of, of responding to them. And I take it that that's what you're referring to in, in talking about dialogue, and that strikes me as right. Nicola, I think you have the last word. The last word, yes. Can I go back to something that was said oh, well, on this yeah. one or just generally? Generally. Can I just come up with one short point? Because I was very interested by the observation made at the back mm. about speakers mm. about universities legitimising mm. uh, the offensive, if not unlawful, views of external speakers. Because I think it's this, this is the point. If we really do believe that freedom of speech has a, a very specific and rather precious role in universities, then that surely means that we have to have speakers on campus um, with whom we profoundly disagree and therefore I cannot see that by having those speakers we're legitimising them and I think the danger of uh, suggesting that universities are legitimising by hosting undermines the role of freedom of speech. If we really believe in freedom of speech then we, are, then we cannot be regarded as legitimising views with which we do not agree. And that goes back to my primary point which I think do think we have to really be uh, promoting the significance of free speech within universities within the context that you've been describing because that's the only way that effectively we can distance ourselves as institutions from views that we don't agree with. Thank you very much. I, mean, I think it has exposed you know, the issues for us. And I mean, there is the issue of freedom of speech and the constraints and the community and the restraints and who imposes them and what people feel. And I think I mean, there does come a point, you know, from my perspective, where I, I feel I ought to say to students, uh, you have to actually restrain yourself and take away your right in order to uh, protect the community. But I guess that, that's from my particular perspective. But uh, I mean, I'd like to thank everybody. I'd like to thank all the audience. I, I think we've had some excellent questions. They've been very wide-ranging, very, very sort of thought-provoking. Uh, but then it is a dialogue. <laughs> so I think it's been a genuine dialogue, and, and one that I, I think you know, I found very helpful and, and very beneficial. But in particular, I'd like to thank our speakers. I'd like to thank Sue, and I'd like to thank Nicola. Thank you very much for coming to the LSE and for helping me with this debate.